0: You'll stand with me as you grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, use the Pew Bible in front, of it, in front of you. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68. Matthew 26, 47 through 68. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 989 in front of you. As Pastor Bruce continues with the series, The Passion of Christ, we're going to see standing firm in the face of injustice. And our text is Matthew 26, Verses 47 through 68, follow along with me as I read. While he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out and... Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, and as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the highest priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the right hand of power and coming on the the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. When they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and just thank you for your word. And we thank you for the passion of Christ that led him to the cross, and we thank you for your your word and and uh, that it and through Christ on the cross we can be saved and reconciled to God. Open our hearts and minds to uh, just to learn and to just to be in your word and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name, Amen.
1: America has long been fascinated with courtroom trials. In fact, over the last 50 years or so, legal dramas have entertained American audiences from Perry Mason to Matlock to L.A. Law to Boston Legal to all the numerous law-and-order TV shows. One of these legal dramas currently airing on TV is called How to Get Away with Murder. This series features law professor and criminal defense attorney Annalise Keating. Keating, in this TV series, is known for being an excellent defense attorney and is hired to defend causes that seem impossible to win. Throughout the series, Keating makes one thing clear to her students at the law school where she teaches. We are not trying to determine whether our client is guilty or innocent. That is not our job. Our job is to win the case. Our job is to convince the jury that our client is innocent. Keating and her legal team are not after justice. They're after victory. And they're after victory at any means possible. Such is the case with Jesus' trial before the Jewish court here in our text. The Jewish leaders themselves are not after a fair trial. They are not concerned with justice. They are seeking false testimony so they can simply put Jesus to death. They had already predetermined the outcome of the trial before it ever began. In fact, you might remember that already earlier, they had plotted together to arrest Jesus and to do so by stealth in order to have him put to death. This is the epitome of injustice. Jesus was the only perfect and completely innocent person who has ever lived, and yet he is declared guilty of crimes he never committed. As a result, Jesus was condemned to the most painful form of capital punishment ever devised. That is crucifixion. But there's a bright side to all of this. A bright side to the darkness of this particular injustice. It was actually the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan of salvation. So that we here might be saved from our own sins. And that's what Matthew wants us to see this morning. That's the focus that Matthew brings to this text. When it comes to the injustice suffered... By Jesus Christ. In fact, notice on the screen, I invite you to pull out the insert there in your bulletin, follow along, hope you have your Bibles open and follow along in God's Word as well. As we unfold this text here, as we look at it verse by verse, and notice this, from a human perspective, the injustice that Jesus suffered at the hands of sinful men, it appears to be a tragedy, But from a heavenly perspective, it actually became a triumph in the hands of a sovereign God. Now, last Sunday, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as He poured out His anguished heart to His three closest friends, and then He poured out His heart to His Father in prayer. We saw this anguish when Jesus confessed, My soul is is very sorrowful, in fact, even to death and his struggle to do his Father's will when he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But we also saw his commitment to do his Father's will as he prayed, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, in Matthew, it's, if Matthew 26 were a movie, what we see coming up here is that last week's text could have ended with the words, to be continued. Uh, Because the passage, as we left it last Sunday, just kind of leaves us with this cliffhanger. Here in verses 45 and 46, it says, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And it's in the middle of the night, And it's likely Jesus could perhaps hear the band of soldiers coming up to the hillside. And what happens next is the most infamous betrayal of friendship and justice that the world has ever seen. This is why the phrase, betrayed by a kiss, is so well known. In fact, this is why even now there are no kids named Judas in the nursery and preschool. Nobody names her kid Judas. Jesus experienced unfairness, injustice in a way that is both striking and disturbing. He is betrayed by one of his own disciples and he's also betrayed by the Jewish court system. You could say Jesus suffers injustice that is both formal and personal and both are painful but in different ways. But what's more remarkable is that Jesus stands firm in both of these injustices. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Notice the first injustice. It's personal for Jesus. It's a personal injustice that he suffers. Jesus stands firm, though, in that injustice. He stands firm in submission when he is betrayed by Judas. The journey to the cross began in agony in the garden, and it now continues with this betrayal by a friend. The agony in the garden is now over. Jesus has fully submitted himself to his Father's will. He will drink the cup of God's wrath. But for that to happen, Jesus must now submit himself to personal injustice, where he allows himself... To be betrayed by a friend and arrested by the soldiers, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled in the face of this personal injustice, notice how Jesus stands firm in submission. That is what overflows from these particular verses here. is Jesus stands firm, but he does so in submission to his father's will. First of all, look at it. Jesus submits to betrayal with a kiss. The hour Jesus has long expected has finally arrived. He has prayed and he is now ready. Immediately after Jesus says, see, my betrayer is at hand, who appears? It's none other than Judas. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, notice the irony in this one verse. Judas is well known, but he is specifically described here as what? One of the twelve. The crowd has come, well armed, and it includes some of the religious leaders, from the chief priests and elders of the people. And yet, when you look at this, nothing seems right about the scene. A friend shouldn't be leading a group of religious leaders to arrest the very Son of God. But Matthew wants us to see something here. In fact, have you noticed that trend here in these verses we've been looking at in what we're looking at here, Matthew 26 through 28? Matthew is showing us. He's wanting us to see the unfolding drama of Jesus' passion before us. On his way to the cross. And again, Matthew is showing us. He wants us to see the tragedy of this very moment. Because it's all part of the personal injustice that the Messiah must suffer on his way to the cross. Now we've already learned that Judas has agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And now he's fulfilling his end of the deal. But it's the kiss. The kiss itself... That makes Judas so infamous. Judas arranged for a sign so that the crowd would know exactly who Jesus was. He told, told them in verse 48, the one I will kiss is the man. Sees him. Notice what Judas says and does to Jesus, though, in verse 49. This is what's really interesting. First, Judas says, greetings, rabbi. Now, why not just point Jesus from a, from a safe distance and whisper to the soldier next to him, yeah, that's the guy. Why not just point him out? But to come face to face with Jesus and then say to him, greetings, Rabbi, well, that's rather wicked. In fact, it's plain wicked. And, and if the hypocritical greeting is not enough, what, is Ju- what Judas does next, next is doubly wicked. He kissed Jesus, twisting a a greeting of friendship into a death sign. A kiss. Imagine that. How insincere. What wickedness on behalf of Judas. In fact, what hypocrite of hypocrites that Judas is. But then there is Jesus. Jesus, who is standing firm in the midst of all this and who submits to all of this. What does Jesus say to his betrayer? Well, it's the shortest speech he will ever give. In verse 50, he simply says, Friend, do what you came to do. And by calling Judas friend, it is both sincere and sad at the same time. It says, in a sense, Jesus is saying to Judas, Do you really want to go through with this? After all that we've been through, three years you've been walking with me. You've been beside me. You've been one of the twelve disciples. Do you really want to follow through with this Judas? Jesus still loves him. He still loves him as one of his 12 and wishes that he might embrace Judas with the kiss of forgiveness and reconciliation. But Judas' kiss lingers. In fact, I can imagine it kind of lingering perhaps on the cheek of Jesus. We don't know where exactly Judas kissed Jesus, whether it was on the lips Or the cheek, reminding Jesus of all the betrayals he has come to forgive or to give his life for. So Jesus submits. Why? Because it's his father's will. He submits to the betrayal with a kiss. But number two, we also see him submitting to the arrest by the soldiers. After Judas kissed Jesus, it says in the rest of verse 50, then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. What's interesting is the soldiers are well armed. And they're well armed with swords and clubs, it says. In other words, they are treating Jesus as an insurrectionist or even a terrorist. But it makes no sense to Jesus. This is why later on, he asked them in verse 55, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Hey, listen, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching... And you did not seize me then. Jesus knows that they are doing this under the cover of darkness. They're doing this at night for a reason. They're doing this through deceit and cover-up. Nevertheless, Jesus allows himself to be arrested. But it's what happens after they arrested Jesus that captures our imagination. That's when the high priest-servant has some cosmetic surgery done to him. And it all begins in verse 51. Look what it says. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And so if you imagine the scene, no doubt there is chaos going on as the servant is screaming in pain. And from John's gospel, we know that it was Peter who cut off the servant's ear. I mean, it sort of makes you wonder, what in the world was Peter doing with a sword in the first place? And after all, Peter was a fisherman, so perhaps that was quite normal for fishermen to carry swords. Perhaps it was even for self-defense. Who knows? Maybe all of the fishermen in Galilee were always packing a little heat. For whatever reason, let's at least note one thing, that Peter was one brave disciple right here in the moment. What were the other disciples doing? Perhaps they were hiding behind an olive tree or two. Perhaps some were lacing up their running sandals. And yet, Peter acts bravely, although brashly. But he alone was courageous enough to come to Jesus' defense. But Jesus wasn't so pleased with Peter's bravado. What Jesus tells Peter is not a pat on the back, but rather a sword to the heart. Look what Jesus says. He rebukes Peter in verses 52 and 53. When Jesus tells him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You see, the problem here, the reason why Jesus is rebuking Peter is because Peter has two wrong understandings. Two wrong understandings about two things. He doesn't understand Jesus' power, and he doesn't correctly understand Jesus' mission. And that's why the rebuke on behalf of Jesus here. You see, Jesus tells him he actually has 12 legions of angels at his disposal. A legion consisted in that day... Of about 5,600 soldiers. So Jesus has access to an enormous angelic army. And when you think of angels, don't think of the cute, precious moments angels. No, no, no. Think instead of the angels such as the one that's mentioned in 2 Kings 1935. That particular angel, we're told, struck down 185,000 soldiers in the camp of the Assyrians. That's the power that you need to think of. And that was one angel. The point is, Jesus has plenty of power. And Peter doesn't understand that. After all, who needs Peter's sword when you have the angels of the Lord? Certainly, Jesus doesn't. But Peter also, and perhaps this is even more important, he has a wrong understanding of of Jesus' mission, and thus the means of that mission. D.A. Carson said it this way, Jesus tells Peter to put away the sword because violence in defense of Christ is simply unacceptable. As another commentator writes, the kingdom of God is neither advanced by force nor truly defended by force. The kingdom is advanced through the proclamation of God's truth and by the excellent lives of God's people. Frederick Bruner said it this way, Perhaps there is even something symbolic about the servant's ear being cut off. For where Christians have used violence to promote Christianity, those regions of the world are somehow least receptive to the gospel. Having no ears, they cannot hear. At the same time, Jesus is not advocating pacifism. Jesus is actually pro-government. Remember what he said earlier? He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And one of the things that is Caesar's, or one of the things that is the government's, is the sword. And the sword is there for the promotion of justice. The government has the sword for the punishment of wrongdoing and for the prevention of anarchy. And notice something else here in this particular text. Notice what Jesus doesn't say to Peter. He doesn't tell him, what's with the sword? Throw that weapon away. Get rid of it. Why are you packing heat? Instead, he tells Peter to put your sword back into its place. In other words, there's a place for the sword. And that place is self-defense. That place is just war. That place is in the hands of government with its military and its police forces. Jesus' mission is at the center of his rebuke, though. In it all, that's what we really need to walk away with here. His mission is the cross, And so, in other words, he is telling Peter, stop resisting the cross. Put down your sword and follow me. In fact, you're going to have to take up that cross if you want to follow me. Otherwise, according to verse 54, Jesus says to Peter, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus submits to. He submits to betrayal by a friend. He submits to the arrest by the soldiers. But most of all, Jesus does all of that to submit to the scriptures of the prophets. He knew he must fulfill God's plan of redemption. And so Jesus says here in verse 56, he says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And note the all this. Do you know why that's significant? Because Jesus is saying that even the painful personal betrayal of a friend, even the deceitful process used to arrest him under the cover of darkness, all of that, all of this is part of God's redemptive plan of salvation. In fact, what does Jesus say earlier in Matthew chapter 5? In that Sermon on the Mount, where he begins there in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus is now doing exactly that. He is submitting to fully to them on his way to the cross what about the disciples well verse 56 says then all the disciples left him and fled earlier it's interesting to note that the disciples had forsaken everything to do what to follow jesus but now right here when perhaps jesus needed the most they forsake jesus to save their own skin The second injustice Jesus faced is less personal, but let me tell you, it's no less painful. The betrayal in the garden came from a friend, but this betrayal in the courtyard came from the high priest, and it reflects the greatest miscarriage of justice in all of history. It is filled with illegal proceedings, false testimony, trumped up charges, and the wrongful condemnation of an innocent man. Notice the formal injustice that Jesus suffered. Jesus stands firm, though, in it all. And he stands firm in silence when he is questioned by Caiaphas. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to put Jesus to death, and nothing less would satisfy them. And to reach this goal, they needed to convict Jesus of a capital offense, More to the point, since the Roman governor reserved the right of execution to himself, they had to find Jesus guilty of a capital crime in both Jewish law, but also according to Roman law. But what was Jesus' offense against Jewish law? And since Jesus paid taxes, and since Jesus lived peaceably, how could the Romans condemn him? So the Jewish high court here, The Jewish religious leaders, their aim was now to find a, quote, and I put it in quotes, legal way to kill Jesus. As you might imagine, there's no sense of justice. It's all just a shell game for them. Something intended to have the appearance of justice. And this whole injustice unfolds in three stages. And the first stage is this. Jesus is taken captive to stand trial before the highest Jewish court. He's taken captive to stand trial. But the Jewish authorities had Jesus in custody. So it says in verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And according to verse 58, And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, here's the deal about Caiaphas. He is a very powerful man. He presided as high priest for 19 years, which is far beyond what was the normal. And the norm was about four years. So Caiaphas was a powerful high priest. That night... An emergency meeting of what is called the council was convened in his home or in the courtyard of his home. And this council was also known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin or this council, they acted kind of like as the, the Jewish Supreme Court in all, over all the land of Judea. The Jewish... Supreme Court here, this council, Sanhedrin, was actually comprised of 71 members who were priests, scribes, and elders. And although this trial appeared on the surface to be legit, everything about this trial is improper. In fact, in their eagerness to try Jesus, in their eagerness to get rid of Jesus, the Sanhedrin break many of their own rules. In fact, later laws actually stipulated that such a trial had to pl- take place in the temple area. Where is this trial taking place? In Caiaphas' home. And it also stipulated it had to take place during the day, not under the cover of darkness at night. But Jesus is arrested late in the evening. And the religious leaders can't afford to, le- to sit on Jesus for very long. They've got to act now. However... The greatest problem with this trial is that the quest for truth was trampled by their desire to convict Jesus of a crime that warranted the death penalty. And their best strategy to accomplish that was to charge Jesus with statements about destroying the temple of God. They chose this strategy because any action against the temple was treasonous to the Jews and seditious to the Romans. Therefore, they began to seek out witnesses who would testify against Jesus so that they could charge him, might we say, temple terrorism. But according to verse 60, what happened? They found none. Though many fault witnesses came forward. The problem is these false witnesses couldn't agree with one another about what they were testifying against Jesus. Needless to say, this trial wasn't going very well for the council or for the Sanhedrin. You can almost sense their blood pressure rising and boiling over. Jesus hasn't even said a word and yet he's winning. But that shouldn't be a surprise to us. After all, his moral excellence made it impossible to bring any legitimate charge against him. But eventually, two witnesses came forward. And they testified against Jesus, and notice in verse 66, I mean 61, what they say. This man, pointing to Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, that is rather ominous. Because desecration of a temple in Jesus' day was a capital crime in Rome and punishable by death. Perhaps that is why the high priest at this moment stood up and said to Jesus in verse 62, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But this charge being made against Jesus, it is a garbled account of hearsay and distortion of Jesus' own words. Yes, Jesus had said the temple would be destroyed. In fact, he made that statement back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. And much earlier than that, Jesus had said in John chapter 2, verse 19, speaking... Destroy this temple, and I will rise it again in three days. And the Jews here thought that Jesus was speaking of a literal temple, the temple in Jerusalem. But he was speaking of what? His own body. And so Jesus' words are now taken out of context, but they were still good enough for these religious leaders who were simply looking for any excuse to put Jesus to death. Now, what's remarkable in the face of All of these false accusations is how Jesus responds. Matthew specifically tells us that he remained what? Silent. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me, in fact, a whole lot of part of me that just wants to shake Jesus and say, Jesus, defend yourself here because you're in the right. So, why the silence? Well, perhaps Jesus knew it would simply accomplish nothing after all. Jesus knew what it said in proverbs twenty four six "Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself, or perhaps more importantly, Jesus was fulfilling. Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53 7, where it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And above all, I think what stands over all of this is Jesus' silence simply reveals his total surrender, his total submission to his Father's will in dying on the cross. Which brings us to the second stage of this trial. Jesus now confesses his identity as the Son of God. With frustration levels rising even more, Caiaphas, the high priest, now finally takes over the trial. And he asked Jesus a direct question, and even put Jesus under oath in verse 63, when he says, I adjure you by the living God. And by that statement, that's what Caiaphas is doing. He's putting him under oath. And then he says, tell us if you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, that question is a loaded question. Because however Jesus answers that question is going to be used against him. If Jesus says that he is the Christ or the Messiah, they will accuse him now of rebellion against Rome. If Jesus says that he is the son of God, they will accuse him of blasphemy. So how does Jesus respond? How would you respond? Jesus replies in verse 64, you have said so. And then here's what's interesting, what Jesus says next. Because what he says next, in essence, what Jesus is doing is he doubles down on his authority, on his divinity, and on his own glory as the son of God in fact look what Jesus says in the rest of verse 64 he says I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven and it's that bold claim that sent Caiaphas this high priest and all of the Sanhedrin into a frenzy Jesus, right here, calls Himself the Son of Man. And in doing so, He puts together two Old Testament passages... Psalm chapter 110.1 speaks of God's Son sitting at God's right hand, which is the place of authority and honor and power. And Daniel 7.3 speaks of one coming in the clouds and giving dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so in essence, when Jesus says, it is as you say, I acknowledge it. That yes is correct. I am the Son of God. And then he adds to it. But what he adds, Jesus is saying, he's telling these religious leaders that while they, right now in that moment, are standing in judgment over him, there is coming a day when he will be standing in judgment over them. Caiaphas can't handle it. He comes unglued. Jesus is telling him, you're judging me now, but this is not over. A day's coming when I will come as judge and king. And I will make the ultimate and final determination of justice, not you. Well, now you can begin to understand why Caiaphas is such in a frenzy. After all, for 19 years, he has been sitting in judgment over God's people. And now there's one who claims to be the very son of God, the Messiah, the son of man, who will one day sit in judgment over him and the rest of the world. Caiaphas can't handle it, which leads us to the third stage. Jesus is condemned for the crime of blasphemy. So what the Sanhedrin declared, get this, to be blasphemy. Jesus himself declared to be truth. But they don't care about truth. Listen, they only care about one thing, and that's putting Jesus to death. Caiaphas pretends now to be horrified by what Jesus said when he tore his clothes. And by the way, a little postscript here, a little FYI, a high priest tearing his clothes is against the Old Testament law. Caiaphas can't even abide by the own laws that were established by God as the high priest in tearing his clothes. In reality, though, in tearing his clothes, he is thrilled, for he can now use everything Jesus said against him. And so Caiaphas declares his own judgment. You get the idea that this court is not only the court, but they're the jury and the judge, and they declared their own verdict. And that's what Caiaphas does here. He declares his judgment in verse 65 where he says, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And so immediately Caiaphas calls for a vote on behalf of the rest of the council in verse 66. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. He deserves death. And so finally... The Jewish religious leaders had what they had been dreaming of for the last three years. Jesus is now declared guilty and deserving of death. And in the fervor of this verdict of theirs, they unleashed their hatred against Jesus. They unleashed their hostility against him. By abusing him and mocking him. Matthew tells us in verse 67 and 68, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And yet, what is fascinating is that in all of this, in all of this injustice, Jesus, stands firm he stands firm in submission he stands firm in silence and he knows it was all part of god's plan of redemption so that we might be rescued from our own sins now what do we make of all of this what do we make of all of this injustice that jesus suffered at the hands of such sinful men How do we connect the dots between his injustice and our own lives and even the injustice that we perhaps suffer today or even have suffered? After all, we live in an unjust world. We crave justice, we want justice, especially for ourselves. When something wrong has happened to us, something unjust. So how do we we connect the dots on all this? Well, we need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice this in your notes. There was never a greater injustice in history than the cross. And yet, God's love for you is demonstrated most on the cross. Here's the thing to walk away with. Jesus was the innocent son of God. The Christ, the Messiah. He was falsely charged. He was unjustly executed. And he bore the wrath of sin that he did not deserve. There is nothing that could ever compare to the injustice of that moment. And so it's amazing that the most important moment in all of redemptive history includes the unjust actions of sinful people. But even through the sinful actions of others, God is doing what? God is sovereign over it all. God is working his plan for our good and for his glory. In fact, when it comes to God's love for you, Paul said it this way in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do for us? He died for us. Listen, there's no better news in all the Bible than this. Jesus died for you. And he made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins. He made it possible for us to be reconciled now to a holy God. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God against sin. All through and all because of the injustice that Jesus suffered. And even though injustice was all over the moment, God still used it to produce the best news ever known in the history of the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with three lessons now about an unjust trial that we can walk home with. The first of which is this. When Jesus returns, he will judge the whole world justly. Hallelujah, amen. He will judge the whole world justly. Yes, Jesus was subjected to a trumped-up trial with false witnesses. Yes, Jesus had distorted testimony against him and a predetermined outcome. Jesus was judged unjustly. But get this, folks, listen to me. When he returns, he will judge the whole world, and he will do so justly. In fact, he declared himself in John 5, and 23, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And Daniel shared this vision of Christ's judgment in Daniel 7, 9, and 10. Look what it says. (coughs) Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's a reference to Christ. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. And so imagine this. Get this. Jesus, at this trial, listen, he stood firm in silence in Caiaphas' court. But there will be another court in the coming day where Jesus will judge justly. And in that court of justice, let me tell you, every wrong will be made right and every sin will be called into account. We look forward to that day if, if you have received Jesus as your Savior and you're on his side. And your sins have been covered by his righteousness. And God's wrath is now turned away. Otherwise, if you have rejected that hope, when Jesus comes to judge, you will be part of that. When Jesus judges, we will be silent before him. Jesus chose to be silent before his accusers. But when Jesus judges us, we will be silent before him because we will have no other choice. Paul writes in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen, when Jesus judges, there will be no more excuses. There will be no self-justification. There will be no alibis to call on. Our mouths will be silenced before God. Because he sees all, he knows all, and he judges justly. And then the third lesson here is when you are treated unjustly, don't retaliate. Trust God instead. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. He says, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, and this is the key, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so when you are treated unjustly, and when everything within you wants to scream for revenge, don't do it. Listen, as Christ followers, we are called to follow Christ's example. And so when you are treated unjustly, and by the way, you will be. So don't be shocked by it. Don't be surprised by it. It's part of living in an unjust world, a world that is full of sin, fallen by sin. We will be treated unjustly. And when that happens, don't retaliate. Instead, trust God, just as Jesus did. Yes, Jesus suffered injustice, and he did so at the hands of sinful people. And from a human perspective, that appears to be a tragedy. But folks, listen to me. From a heavenly perspective, it became a triumph in the hands of a sovereign God. Ed Welch writes in his book, Shame Interrupted. He says, God was on trial, the world was judge and jury, and this was the path that Jesus chose as the way to rescue the shame. The path he chose to rescue you. The cross is the best and quickest summary of what God says to unworthy people. He always says, I love you first. Jesus stood firm. Aren't you thankful for that? He stood firm in the face of injustice for you on his way to the cross so that you might be saved from your own sins and reconciled to a holy God. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask you this morning, have you trusted in Jesus, the Son of God? Have you trusted in Him for your salvation? Have you counted on the fact that He was condemned so that you could escape condemnation? Have you seen yourself as a sinner and seen Jesus as the one who took your place to die for your sins on the cross so that you could be set free? Listen, this morning, let me urge you, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord to save you, man, do so today. The instrumentalists are going to play through a chorus, and while we're seated at our pews, you can cry out to the Lord in prayer to save you to repent of your sin and ask him to forgive you. If you have already believed in Christ, then give thanks and reaffirm your faith, putting all your hope in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for such amazing love that you would send your son for us. Thank you that you demonstrated your love for us, that even while we were sinners, you died for us. Give us the grace to follow Christ's example when it comes to facing injustice in this life. Help us not to retaliate, but to trust you, knowing that when Jesus returns, he will judge justly and make all things right. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.